Welcome to AB Testing Podcast, your modern testing podcast. Your hosts, Alan and Brent, will be here to guide you through topics on testing, leadership, agile, and anything else that comes to mind. Now, on with the show. So uh, this is the AB Testing Podcast. How's it going, Brent? Super. So excited. You should be excited because this is our 136th episode. <laughs> so, and Brent types to figure it out because you yeah, can't Yeah, 130 something. Thirty-nine or sixteen. So we're here on another Friday afternoon. A beautiful spring is coming sort of time in the Northwest. Uh, yeah, and we're going to do a podcast. And then we're going to, I'm going to edit it. And then through the magic of the internet, you will hear this, these words being spoken, time shifted by about two and a half days on Monday. Or later, depending on when you listen. Or It's, it's magical. Right, or earlier if you're part of the secret club. Oh, how does one get into the secret club, Brent? It's really hard. It's really hard. You have to magically navigate Google to find the A-B testing uh, You don't even site. need Google. You can just go to moderntesting.org. Oh, come on. I want them to. It's a secret club. You have to I work hard to, for it? Uh, no, no, they have it's to not work that a little. Oh, Brent, you you're, you're being dumb. And then they have to click the link to join the one of the three uh, Slack channel. Yeah, and that's it. And then you can ask questions there, and I always post it. Again, a lot of people stay away from Slack over the weekend, so there's no requirement to listen to it early. But I always post it on our Slack group for preview of people that hang out with us uh, the weekend before, just uh, or two days before when I get whenever I get done editing. Actually, as soon as I get done editing, and which is also a good chance for me to get feedback on. Uh, hey, Alan, you accidentally posted audio from a kid's birthday party. I said, oops, wrong video, wrong audio. But yeah, you get a chance to listen ahead of time if you'd like. It doesn't show up in RSS feed. Just download it. Of course, if you'd rather just have life be simple, you can be in the Slack group, take part in conversations, and wait until the podcast shows up in your feed on Monday. Whatever makes your life easier. Yeah, whatever you want. That, uh, as long as it also makes our life easier, we're super supportive. Yeah, we're, we're pretty easy going here for a bunch of old guys, or a couple old guys, at least two old guys. A couple weeks ago, I did a webinar. Next week, I'm doing another webinar. Nice. Thursday uh, uh, night, uh, which is going to be really crappy time for those of you in Europe. But for the Americas, I think it's like starts at 6 o'clock. I'll try and put a link in it in the show notes, but you can look at my both my LinkedIn feed and my Twitter feed and probably find it. I'm doing a... Uh, a webinar on just learning stuff and I'm putting together a presentation I'm going to tell you what's in it but it was really cool the people organizing it at, at um, PNSQC said you don't even have to give a presentation you can just facilitate some conversation which I love so what I'm going to do is I'm going to kick it off with a little I'll kick it off I'll do a little bit of both I'll kick it off with a little bit of stuff around learning I want to talk about probably largely a little recap of Steven Johnson because the reason they contacted me one is they know me because I've spoken at their regular in-person conference a couple times right you're a favorite of theirs if I I don't know if I'm a favorite but you know I'm on the list they're also curious like where like how do you find these five for Friday things what motivates you to learn which is really good question 
of course, Five for Friday comes from a brief infatuation I had with um, what's his face, Tim Ferriss, and he he does a, a Five Bullet Friday thing. I thought, you know, I want to do something like that for the stuff that I care about. But really, it comes back to a book I read that I don't remember the name. And I don't know how it is for you, but I recollect what year it was by what product I was working on at the time. So sometime around 2001, 2002, I read some book. And in the book, it said, hey, if you want to get new ideas, you should probably read some stuff that's outside of your area. Because as I learned from Steven Johnson years and years later, ideas come from other ideas. Oh, yeah. Let me... Can I... uh... No. Let me shit. Oh, all right. No, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Just kidding. Um, Psych. Yeah, go, go ahead, Brett. I actually uh, use this a great deal. So, uh, as you and the three know, uh, I manage the data science team. Uh, and uh, as you and the three may not know, uh, data science is an extremely broad term. Right. There are hundreds of specializations. Um, somebody who, who uh, for example, is working on face recognition, certainly he or she are going to know all about the basics, you know, what's clustering, what's classification, et cetera. But in terms They're of... They're all words. Yeah. Duh. In terms of specific techniques, uh, there's a deep specialization in... in that context okay and so even though i have my unfair share of phds reporting to me uh they do not in fact know everything about data science so one of the things that i do papers uh we spend a lot of time on on research papers you go to google scholar you look up stuff and you can see sort of people's prior published ideas okay but in terms of the concept of ideas always come on the, on the old ideas coming together, a research paper is exactly that. Uh, I, I will call out, you go to the references section and the references section is not only the old ideas that are being brought together, but it is a very clean follow-upable uh, enumeration of that list. And, and so when I, when I have one of my data scientists come to me and, and say, hey, I'm stuck. I cannot figure out how to move around this. I, I give them the following exercise. Okay, all I want you to do is every day, I want you to start off and, and go to Google Scholar and just do a search for something that you see as a, you know, do a, a keyword search for something you think is relevant. That's it. And then I want you to pick one of those articles there and read it. And then next day, and don't do anything with it, just read it. Next day, based off of that, either do a different keyword search and and read something or go to the references of that one and pick one of those to do it. Yes. And and I'm I'm, going to add that to my presentation. Something I've done before but I forgot about is read a, in short, read a research document, but go look where they got their ideas from. Right. And I just basically say, do that, do that, just reading that algorithm, reading one paper a day for 14 days. And I promise you, you will, you will find the answer you're seeking. Yes. And, and even further than that, you won't get the 14 days. Yes. 
I'm going to go in. That's good. We're going to have more anecdotes to share. I do want to do an A-B test here on the A-B testing. So that would technically be an A slash B test on the A-B testing podcast. Could okay. you take your microphone, maybe lower it three inches, just to keep it above nose level, but a little bit there. Try it right there. Now, um, Brent, on a scale of one to ten, how much of an idiot do you think I am? Uh, seven. Okay. Oh, wait, one to ten? No, four, five, Okay, three? half an idiot. That's that's fair. That's yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to, you know, I gave a presentation years ago leveraging Stephen Johnson's material, and there's a slide in there that's probably worth going over in our, our tangent weave here. So, uh, oh, back to the presentation. Uh, it is hard to keep track of all the tangents sometimes, isn't it? What the I don't, I don't book, bother anymore. What the book suggested, which was something that became a part of my life for about five years and I kind of lost track and it went away once I had children, but it suggested I subscribe to this thing called, you know, just one of the ideas was science news and science news was a print magazine, tiny. It was like, it arrived every week, but it was maybe 12 pages and I could read through the whole thing and not understand most of it. But for some reason, just like looking at these research ideas, you're, for, you're looking at something different every day. It planted seeds that made me think about some things differently. And it may not say, oh, I'm going to apply this thing from science to this thing I was doing in testing. It was more of, oh, here's another way to think about stuff. And I would just maybe even subconsciously think about uh, not applying the thing from science news, but oh, here's an when they did this experiment, they thought about this thing in two different ways. Can I think about this particular problem in two different ways? But a lot of really subtle things. So definitely a suggestion there. I don't know if they make the magazine anymore. It might have gone from weekly to every other week and got a little thicker. But at some point, I stopped subscribing. But just fascinating. I felt really smart after I read it. And I've been progressively dumber ever since. So as part of that presentation, I looked for some titles of some of the best conference talks that were happening on the test circle for various reasons I'll go over in a minute. And I want to share some of these with you and going to get your thoughts. The art and science of load testing internet applications. That's applicable to developers as well as testers. Model-based testing for data-centric products. Also interesting, could be applicable. Mm -hmm. Managing user acceptance tests in large projects. It's That could be, again, it's a little businessy title, but in the... Uh, when we care about, like, we're trying to do outcome-based testing, those user acceptance tests can be important. Yes. Architectures of test automation. I'm much more comfortable having a development team own that, but I like to hear the ideas there. Habits of highly effective testers, very generic one, but, you know, good. So what do you think about those talks I just described? Uh, I don't like are, the last two. They, the last two kind of feel, you know, 1996-ish to me. Um, but the oh, other ones... Actually, you're very close because these are all titles from conferences given in 1999 and 2000. Mm, interesting. <laughs> yeah. So the point um, is, could we please have some new ideas? I'll take new ideas and test for uh, $500, Alex. What is blank? The problem, one problem in the industry and something we've talked about before directly and indirectly, I'll just gloss over, is that a lot of people get their information on how to improve whatever craft or knowledge work they're doing from one or two places or one or two places or people. That is not a way to get new ideas. You regurgitating, for example. I was reading, and I'll, I'll name drop Michael Bolton here. I was reading an article he wrote on LinkedIn and someone tagged me in it and, uh, for good reasons. Someone who is not 
not trying to stir anything up. They had actually a reason for tagging me in. And since I was there, I asked about this concept of someone else mentioned, oh, I found that critical distance is blah, blah, blah. And so I spent a bunch of time searching on what critical distance was. And I asked the person not very much to find. Bolton later told me later later to look for a different term called psychological distance or something, but a little bit better. But I'm, I'm glad. Again, they've done a lot of thinking on this stuff and they get it. I think this particular thing is in a little bit in a vacuum because yeah, if, it, if it is one person doing all of the work, some of those things do exist, but we work collaboratively. But the main thing was, the main disappointment was this person had no idea what the term they were using meant. They just regurgitated. They did no, like my reaction is to go figure out, okay, I want to see why I have some cognitive dissonance with this term because I can't, I want to know more about it so I can understand where to apply it. So I did the research, try and figure it out. And it turns out that the person making the argument, this was the reason in this case why developers can't test. They were using a term that they had heard but never researched. And to me, I find that, uh, again, for a knowledge worker, I find it uh, some word I can't, I don't remember the English word for it. Uh, bullshit? Stupid? I mean, <laughs> uh, idiotic? Uh, I mean, I, I, I mean, you're old, but I'm, I, I mean, I came up with three right there. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> but... If, I mean, if you if you want to be good at anything in knowledge work, I don't care if it's testing specialty or software development or data science or Jesus architecture, anything that requires the creative mind and you know, the balance of adaptive learning work. That, I mean, the definition of knowledge work is that you are often learning as you go along. You have to take the learning part seriously. So I could go, I could, for the rest of this podcast, talk about the different methods of where new ideas come from Steven Johnson. And I won't, no, I won't. But you have to seek out places to expand your repertoire of ideas. It can't be from one or two places. It can't be from 10 or 12. It needs to be from dozens or hundreds. And you have to be hungry to, to find those things. I'm. It's frustrating to me to see people who their thoughts on test are based purely on what they've seen one or two or three people say about testing. I don't get how you can, I don't get it. I'm, I'm up on a, a soapbox I did not intend to go on, but the point that I want to go over in this talk is you have to find ways to get new ideas into your head, especially in the last 12 months where you can't go meet with other people. The, the enlightenment, the one thing from maybe Stephen Johnson's book is the idea of coffee shops and getting people together, finding a meeting place, a community for people to exchange ideas, that helps innovation and ideas thrive. The one line from the book is, chance favors the connected mind. Yeah. It's like being yeah. in the right place at the right time to figure out how stuff works. He talks about the adjacent possible, which is taking something that's, and just and just making that one little extra step to make, to figure out that peanut butter and chocolate go pretty good together. But, you have to constantly seek out ideas and you have to not be afraid to do new stuff. Maybe this ties into a chapter for a book I wrote that I, I'm really proud of and I don't have it pulled up here to read from, but there's this ebook put together called Around the World, Around the Testing World in 80 Days or something, where I was given free reign to write about anything I wanted. And I'm going to tell a story, which is a paraphrase of my article. It starts off with me saying, oh, hey, 
I'll take that on. And it was me approaching a conversation back when I worked on that stupid science project and I was bored and I happened to walk by on a conversation of someone wanting to set up a bunch of static analysis tools and SonarCube and some other tools for our product, which built on Linux. I joined that team so I could get my Linux skills and my Java skills up to stuff. It was very early in the product. I had no idea how to do the thing that I just said I would love to take on because for me, if I'm not in a position where I have to learn in order to be successful, I'm kind of bored and not happy. Uh, yeah, and that's actually one thing that you and I have in common is going back to the orders of ignorance. We're pretty confident in our ability to construct a means by which the one thing that I'm totally mind blanking on, um, right? Uh, the fourth order that doesn't exist any means by which yeah. the... You don't have a suitable means to discover what you don't know you don't know. Right. You and I both have a, a process by which we go, uh, well, I, I'll say like for me, I just go most of the time, it's like, it's just code. It's not magic. I'll, I'll figure it out. It's really not that hard. But uh, I do know that a large number of people, and I think some of our listeners don't, don't sort of have that um, same sort of sense. The, so I've always been attracted it, up until the team I'm on right now, uh, like one thing you and I had in common is we get bored and change teams. For me, I got more interested in looking for, and whenever, whenever it was on the team hunt is go, okay, what is the team that I think would most be able to leverage my strengths, but at the same time is working in the space I know little to nothing about, right? And if I can go and find that the people culture there uh, is great, then I'm in. Done. It's over. Yeah, but we could, I had another topic I wanted to get to, but I want to stay here a little bit because yes, this is absolutely true. And what I've sort of inadvertently done as I've grown into managing a larger team, which we've talked about before, drink, is I've developed a little bit of a pattern and reputation for taking on a, taking a hard problem on, figuring out the details on my own, and then delegating it away to part of my team to continue to maintain and grow. It helps me learn a lot, and then it gives me opportunities to give people things to do. You know, when I joined my current org, it was program management. And again, I said the same thing. My, the, my hiring manager, who did not have an engineering role for me to go into, said, hey, can you do program management? Because he wanted to have me on his team. I said, sure. And I, I had never done that before. And, and again, to remind you, Brent, program management in the rest of the world is much different than the hybrid thing at Microsoft. It's it's reducing complexity and understanding. And, and what it turned out to me in the end, once I figured it out, really what my role ended up being was running the, what he, what he calls the, what we both call the engineering system, engineering operating system. That's just like running an engineering team. It's the same thing I did for uh, when I was the senior or quality architect or some high-level senior tester reporting to test directors way back in the day. so And because it involves coaching teams on agile practices and coaching teams on quality, uh, that was great. But anyway, I did that. 
that was did not intend to talk about what I did, but really I took that on, figured it out, and I'm now delegated it and have someone better than me running that portion of the org, which is good because our projects are getting more complex in some cases. Same thing with quality. I have a super great quality leader on my team who I've, I don't have to, of course I'm involved and I'm curious and I'm, I try and remain uh, highly opinionated about quality, but really my whole org is quality, but I have a part of my org who are dedicated to quality coaching and someone very capable there all delegated away. Most recently, as I believe we discussed, I've been diving deeply into cutting our, and again, don't know how to do it. Sure, I'll figure it out, but figuring out what we can do to cut our spend on cloud hosting. I learned a lot of things, got it all figured out, made a lot of dashboards. I'm delegating that work away. I'll take on something new. When we talk about knowledge work, I've found that people, again, I don't have to be just like me. I'm like you and I, we're happy. We're most happy when people can keep on giving us more and more things we haven't done before. I'm most happy when I get to be in over my head at work. And I see folks who pride themselves on the craft of blah, but they just want to do the same thing over and over. And it just baffles me. I mean, everyone at some point in time is, uh, you got Pink's principles memorized better than I do, but mastery is important, but it like you and I, we're sort of mastering the meta. Like we're more, we're more interested in mastering the, uh, I don't know, the journey versus any specific destination, but other people are wired differently. but, But mastery comes from not being able to do it, but being able to have the right resources to be able to do it. The first time this happened to me, I thought I was going to get fired. I was three years into Microsoft. Remember, I'm a self-taught programmer, but I figure stuff out well enough. People gave me more credit than I was worth. And I was, maybe I've told you this story. I was paired with one of the original Microsoft OS guys to work on the debug version of Windows because it had been neglected for a while and to get it running from the Win9X platform and debugger development. And I thought, great, I'm going to learn a lot from this guy. Hopefully he doesn't call out how stupid I am. But then he retired like a week in. They said, it's okay, Alan, you can own it by yourself. So I am scared to death, but... I got a book on assembly language because I had to learn assembly language in order to do this because the kernel and the debugger are largely an assembly. And I slowly poked my way through the same way you would. You make a bug fix here, a bug fix there, you tweak another thing. And and eventually it was almost like I knew what I was doing. I knew enough what I was doing. People assumed I knew what I was doing. And I went from, I'm going to get fired to you know what? I love figuring stuff out that's really hard. It's, a, it's what motivates me. And since then, I, I seek that out. I seek that steep learning curve. And it sounds too much like I'm bragging, but I guess the point is a lot of, in addition to being a white male, a lot of my success comes from just chance favoring the connected mind, being available to try new things out, being just being open to new ideas and accepting them. Yeah, it, it, well... You and I have talked about it before, right? In in knowledge work is essentially uh, idea work, and so for me to to sort of lock into uh, this is the best idea ever. Like, I, and I think you agree with me, uh, but I'll just ask: what's what's your thought on the term best practice? 
I'm pausing because it's a loaded term. On one hand, taken semantically correct as written, it's stupid because there is no, it, it's all contextual. There's no best practice. Generally, not always, but generally when people use best practice, they're not looking for that. They're not, it's, it's similar to using literally to say, Brent, I'm literally on fire right now. I'm not. So for best practice, it depends on the, for a phrase that depends on context, it depends on the context of how it's being used. If by best practice, you mean the thing I absolutely have to do all the time, then I don't like it. If by best practice, you mean a thing that generally works most of the time, which is the typical use of that, then I don't mind it. What was uh, the answer you were fishing for? Uh, the term by itself, uh, uh, without a context, is in my view just blatantly offensive. Just, it is, but, just it's, but it's not. The point is, it's not used that way in general. And, and no, you're right. It, it, the well, I don't know. Like the the places where I've seen it used is in, in terms of um, weaponizing uh, uh, an idea during a negotiation. Hey, this is known to be a best practice. Uh, for the last 10 years. Of, of course, I would then argue, if this is a best practice for the last 10 years, uh, you're wasting my time. Yeah, it, it would be easier if we got rid of the term because it yeah. it can be abused. So I'm not sure where you're going with that. You asked me a question about it, but what was the intent behind that question? Uh, it was essentially, uh, in terms of, of knowledge work and idea work, yeah, there is a best known way to move forward today However, uh, knowledge work will continue. We will continue to learn new things and to sort of stay locked into sort of a mindset that the, that the things that I've learned for the last 20 years and I have now mastered this uh, in our space, I, I think is at best a mistaken idea, at, at worst, just abject foolish. Hey, I want to change the subject slightly, yeah, slightly and get your, this is something we've talked about before, but I want to frame it a little bit differently. So I could almost ask you a similar question back, but sorry, I haven't thought about how to put this, but I'll put it like this. Inevitably, you know, I've written these articles, uh, highly opinionated, somewhat controversial. There, is, there are a few people who've come back on both articles and say, oh, you, you wrote testing, but you meant checking, which I think is a big load of crap. What? But whatever. You do you. But I do see from even those folks and a few others, there is among the Internet a high like you and I have both said, I'll put it this way. The readers are all going, Alan, get to the f point. And the point is. A lot of testers focus on testing as almost as the end all of what they're doing. And you and I have both stated, we don't really care about testing. We care about quality. Yeah. Our goal is different. It's, it's whether is for, and this is, I think the, the crux of it, I don't know where your question is, but the crux of it, when you say the word testing, do you view it as the ends or the means? Well, you know, the answer, it's definitely the means. Uh, well, for you and me, it's definitely the means, but it's not for a large portion. Like, but why I, I think is that? What, what, what led people to believe that customers care about testing? Because they don't. Heads up, customers don't give one little bit of their red freckle on their nose 
about how many tests you run and how many which tests you ran on this build? They don't. They don't. And matter of fact, the only places where I've ever seen testing by a customer being communicated, it was an expression of lack of quality. Hey, hey, Apple didn't test their shit, right? It's just the only useful term from a customer in terms of testing turns out in my mind, and this is a hypothesis of generating on the fly, is to scapegoat, right? It's the same shit dev does. No longer have the conversations. I'm now at a point I'm like, oh my God, If uh, I haven't heard it in years, but when people come to me, well, why wasn't this tested before? I'm like, is that hypothetical? Like, are you just asking yourself this out loud? Like, what is actually the answer to that question and what are you going to do to fix it? Let me interrupt you. I'm going to weave you through some thoughts I've had about this and get your thoughts on how they relate to this topic where... I mean, we can go back to Weinberg, who says quality is value to some person. Quality doesn't say about testing. So what value it brings. We've had discussions about that. If 10,000 people are using a thing that has 20 known bugs and only five people are using a thing that has no known bugs, which one has higher quality? It's the one with more people. Right. You know, a long time ago, did you ever read Quality is Free, the Philip Crosby book? No. It's about manufacturing and 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 people read it and poo poo it. And, uh, there are some, it's about prevention, which you and I both would actually prefer fast detection over prevention. Cause it's more efficient and we like to be efficient. Go INTPs. Uh, yes. By the way, we are going to talk about personality types this time. We're going to do it next time instead, because we've already used all this time on this topic. I don't want to end it. So another thing he said that I've been thinking about recently, I want to plant this on you is this is a book where he says quality is conformance to requirements. I have a, a twist on that. First, I want to know, and I'm sure you've heard that definition before, but what do you think about that definition of quality, of conformance to requirements? Uh, I'll, I'll do it this way. Uh, I'm okay with it. I'm, under the condition that those requirements um, don't necessarily have to be communicated. My statement is what every customer wants is actually a solution to their problem. Yes. And that that's the twist. I just got, I read that and it, it didn't, it didn't sit well with me when I read it 15 years ago, but it's principle number five. I would say quality is conformance to requirements when the customer defines the requirements, their requirements are defined implicitly, not explicitly. Yeah. Now, now you and I are on the same page. I mean, the problem is we're, it, this is the problem with this podcast is eventually we're always <laughs> on the same page because we, we, yeah, because yeah. reasons. Yeah, exactly. It, it's conformance to the requirements. Sure. But it's their requirements around what the customer needs, not necessarily what they are asking for. That's it. Now, would I ever, if I were writing a book, would I ever use that statement? No, because I know there's a lot of people that will take that literally and then go off and do the wrong thing. So l- let me build on my last statement, make a statement made by me, not by anybody else. So based on the Weinberg definition, that quality is value to some person, that, that would be a customer. And then my modified Crosby definition that quality is conformance to the requirements as defined implicitly by the customer. I would make this statement and I want your reaction on it. If you don't know who your customer is, 
and what problem you're solving for them, you cannot define what quality is or you don't know what quality is. Yeah, but isn't, aren't you just restating principle five? I am in a different way. <laughs> okay. So okay. it made me think that this, when we talk about quality and testing not being the same thing, and people will say, oh, of course they aren't. But then they talk about how they improve quality. All they talk about is the testing they do. And principle five says that we can't do that. We need the customer. We can't build a quality product without a customer. Even if it was quality, we won't know. It's like, it's like the tree that fell in the forest. We can't measure it. Right, right. I, I've been thinking through, since you brought it up earlier, the, the checking versus testing argument. There's no right? argument. It, it's just a... Yeah, no, 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 I get it. it uh, hold, hold back, hold back the soapbox ramp for a moment. And they hold it off. And, and, and honestly, part of me wants to go and say, okay, guys, let's sit down. Let's have an objective and real conversation in today's world. What is the value of testing that you are holding up and then trying to drive and improve a specialization and craftsmanship around? Because to me, from where I sit, honestly, Alan, I kind of think of testing as a specialization, very similar to blacksmithing. Right. It's in a back in a certain time, in a certain context, it was extremely valuable. It still exists today. Um, and if, if I had a choice between, uh, let's say, a pocket knife built by a master craftsman and and one built by a factory in China uh, that were the same price tag, obviously, I'm going to pick the master craftsman because yeah. those but if if what I need is something that's going to last uh, my expected uh, lifetime use of it, I'm probably going to go towards the the cheaper option, which is going to be the factory. And you, and you know what? So well, it's the majority of right. It, it may be easier just to buy a new one every six months or cheaper. Right. Right. So. I I want to keep on going. I know we're getting to our last 10 or 15 minutes here. So there are more pieces to this. And this is why, again, going back to our first topic is maybe I'll repeat another statement. When I read my first book on test software testing, I thought I knew a lot. Then I read another book and I thought, now I know a lot. Then I read a third book and I got confused and realized how little I knew. And the more I've read about software engineering, software quality, software testing, I realize how much there is I don't know and how much I need to learn. There's, is that Dunning-Kruger effect, right? I knew a little bit enough to think I knew a lot. And then as I knew more, I realized I didn't know anything. It could be something different. Yep. There's some other things that feed into this. So the question, the context of this is, so if quality is value to some person or performance requirements and testing does not equal quality, how do we build a quality product? And then one other flavor is it's been 15 years now since Ed Keys gave that keynote at a Google test automation conference where he said sufficiently advanced monitoring is equivalent to testing. So yeah. there's something in there too. And I would say monitoring is testing. Well, I'll, I'll, I mean, I feel safer with what Ed said. Okay, fair enough. Right? So, but because with, there's, with there's a context, lot of crap monitors out there. So if testing is not quality, what do you need to do to build a quality product? 
I can't just write code, then test it, then ship it. You're telling me, Alan, that's not quality. So what are the steps to build a quality product? Are, are we redoing episode 83 all of a sudden? Or whatever it was, principle five? <laughs> like the... You, we, you have slightly, to... Principle five is prevalent in this theme, but... Right. So it, to know it, if it's you all, have a It's coming product, together in a different way. It's a thought experiment. T- there's two things you have to know to determine if you have a, a quality product. Number one, what the hell problem it actually solves, right? Um, there's a hypothesis, hypothesized problem, but it's a, a lot of the times the problem it actually solves is actually not the one that you intended, right? Uh, and that, that goes to uh, your early example uh, from Steven Johnson. I actually think of his uh, air conditioner story. What problem does it solve? Then once you're firm on what problem it solves, to what degree it actually does. So you have to have a, a, you have to have a technique to evaluate quality. You have to have some sort of technique where you are continuously evaluating those two spaces simultaneously. And you cannot do that without, uh, here I'll use double quote, customer uh, data, I'll call it that, right? And here, I, uh, because I don't wanna get into the, the no, semantic no. quagmire around the term customer, but I think the majority of our listeners probably understand where I'm coming from. Well, our listeners do. And sometimes we're preaching yeah. to the choir, but it's good to think about. I like to think about it this way because I, this massive, and I've noticed it because I'm getting, you know, I get lots of Twitter DMs and LinkedIn messages and comments on my posts because I've been talking about things that make people feel uncomfortable. But the point is for everyone who thinks I'm a quack and who I've made feel uncomfortable, there are at least as many people that that think, well, again, I'm not describing some new panacea. We're describing what we're seeing. If you disagree with it, you're disagreeing what's happening in reality. So the feedback I've gotten is more, I I would classify it more sort of name calling. Hey, you're disrespecting the discipline that you grew up in. And honestly, I don't know. I don't don't have a whole lot of empathy for that. And I don't care about the feedback, right? I'm trying to figure out how to... I don't say educate, but I want to justify what we're seeing and put it into perspective. So let's do the quick thought. We have five minutes left. Just do a quick yep. thought experiment. I have some fingernail clippers. You can't see them. Brent can see them barely. I can. Um, yeah. On my desk. I'm using this as inspiration. I am. I have a customer hypothesis, uh, a, a problem statement. I don't believe. I don't believe people in a, across around the world are able to to solve their nail clipping problems efficiently enough, I am going to launch fingernailclippers.com. It's gonna be great, I have a great designer, and time goes by and we have this site as we've, we've tested extensively the shopping cart and and orders and shipping, it's all set, it's good to go. We've done a hard launch with lots of marketing, big marketing budget. We want it to be the premier place to get fingernail clippers on the internet. We tested the crap out of it. So on one hand, I'm thinking it's high quality because we can't find any bugs. We ran 100,000 tests and our, our my little website is live and uh, then very little happens. We're not getting orders or we're getting very few orders. 
what happened? Obviously, our is our, our site is failing. You could say it has quality issues because it's not providing value to any people or very very few people. What did we do wrong? How do I fix it? How do I do? Who Brent? I've hired you to help me get out of my quagmire. This reminds me like Elizabeth Hendrickson talks a lot about she was hired to fix quality problems and they were never with the test team. So anyway, help me fix it. What do I do? Uh, This one, this one is, um, I I would take the role that I, I know venture capitalists do. And I would just simply say, okay, Alan, who, who did your market analysis? Like, what made you believe this was a problem that needed to be solved? And if you came back and said, you know, one day I had inspiration and I was staring at my shiny black nail clippers on my desk and, and I moved uh, uh, mountains to make this website happen, then the solution is easy. Is, okay, who's your target customer? All right, so Number go on. Let's say I did market analysis and I assumed I had a million customers any one time across the U.S. Just pretend. So then where do you go? So you look at that, basically you look at that data and, and it's rock solid. And you're thinking, wow, well, you should be doing better. Now what did we do wrong? Did we not test it well enough? No, testing has nothing to do with this one. That's exactly- <laughs> sorry, right. it, sorry it, Your Honor, I'm leading the witness. Right. No, no. It, like the, the solution they're in uh, is, is the problem here is why did you ship it? Right. Given the, the data that you mentioned, why did you invest in it? Why did you ship it? Right. It, it, the clear thing that you're showing is that it is it is not providing an interesting enough solution to a problem humans have. And the fix would be, Alan, to send you out to physically talk to, not your marketing team, you, to talk to the customers and find out why. And you didn't quite, I mean, you're exactly right. I was leading you a little bit deeper into it. Uh, You absolutely need to make sure you're solving a relevant problem. You're really trying to, you're hypothesizing, you're, you're developing a hypothesis to determine if you're actually going to provide value for some person. You could, because, Tests of omission might occur. So what often we do, as you know, it may have been a while since you work on a commerce site, but there's the whole acquisition funnel. People have to know about the site. They have to come to this site. They have to put stuff into their cart. Then they have to check out. I'm just making this up on the fly, so it's not great. But if you're actually, so there's, do you have an audience? And maybe we're getting 10,000 visitors a day. And that seems obvious, like, you know, well, then... Why aren't we getting more sales? We can go one more step down the acquisition funnel. And I think you'd be, we'd be better suited than writing a whole big automated test suite. Of course, you want to test the happy path to make sure people can put stuff in their cart and, and enter credit card and, and get it checked out and get it added to a shipping queue. But monitoring at every stage of your of your funnel, every decision point they can make from, this is where you can do your experiments and your A-B testing and your monitoring, uh, sorry, experiments and A-B testing are the same thing. But you want to look at every decision point from when they enter the site to where do they find, because they have to go through a half a dozen decisions or more until they check out and they've put money in your in your bank account uh, to see where they may be failing, where they may be falling off. Maybe anyone with a, uh, maybe you have a bad regex weirdness and anybody with a two-digit two digits for the first uh, part of their IP address can't check out or something stupid like that. You Maybe you discover that there. 
But there could be well, all kinds so of things that go wrong where monitoring is and focusing on customer value and that acquisition funnel is the right thing to do. User journey funnels. Uh, are, I like are that things- name. I like that name of user journey funnel. Is that a real thing? Can I look that up? Uh, it user journey, user funnels, uh, they're, they're, I, I'm I've, heard, taking, I've heard user journey and I call it the acquisition funnel, but a user funnel or journey funnel. Well, so there's, there, there's acquisition funnels. There's, there are retention funnels or the churn, um, churn, uh, they call funnels, but they're really anti funnels cause you're trying to prevent, uh, people getting to the bottom of those funnels. I, um, I thought at the bottom they check out and make money. <laughs> not with a churn funnel. Right. A oh, churn funnel. Churn funnel. You're right. It depends right. on. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Whatever. Or, 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 for example, support. A support thing. You, you would, you would look at sort of key sequences, and you're trying to get them to not go to the next level, right? It's. I, I frame it normally as an anti funnel because uh, I think it's clear. But yeah, if the top of your funnel is has a high rate. And uh, let's say, you know, your favorite host of deities were the ones responsible for the testing, like their code's bug free, then you you still have, you have something worse. You have, you have a problem solution mismatch someplace in your system that you need to go find. I, I think the meta point before we close on this is you have to, fo- going, going back to what you said earlier, focus on the problem that you're solving for the customer and then determine what you need to do in order to know if you're solving that problem correctly. Right. Right. Uh, and, uh, and testing, again, I'm not saying don't do testing. Testing is great for regressions, mitigating risks. There's lots of reasons for it. Please, 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 please don't think of it as the end goal of your quality efforts. And actually just uh, agreed. And sorry. I'm going to go back to one last thing. I just thought of a, a perfect example for your scenario where you could have a situation bug free and a high attraction rate. Okay. When you sign up people for a trial, ask them for a credit card number, right? That just pisses people off asking them yeah. for a credit card number for a free Again, trial. They, oh, I could do fingernail subscriptions. Fingernail clipper subscriptions. Yeah. Get the credit card. Yeah. No, I know. But this is again why. You will get much higher quality if you get to that culture of experimentation and hypothesis around what you're delivering to see if it's providing, if it's solving the problem you intended to solve. The fact that you ran 10,000 tests mean, mean you, well, there was the Eric Reese quote. If you show me a product that's bug free and I'll show you a product that shipped three months too late. Yeah. I don't know if it's three months, but it certainly shipped yeah. late. <laughs> so... Yeah, that, that all comes into play there too. So I want to bring all that together into that conversation. Uh, we are out of time, but this was fun. Yeah. We will come back in a couple of weeks and talk about personality types a little bit more, but that'll be fun. And was there anything else I was going to say? Uh, see ya. Okay, then see ya. <laughs> Brent says see ya. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.